Right, there I am. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Everybody, did everybody feel the extra hour of sleep today? Uh, today? Yeah? Good. Did anybody, uh, Tyler said he didn't even, he forgot about it, didn't even know what happened until he got here. <laughs> Pretty funny. Uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Lana for stepping in last week. She did an excellent job uh, filling in. We had a last-minute opportunity to, to go back east, even I, to go to Cleveland to help Zeke get established in his uh, new apartment out there. Um, so he's been stationed in Cleveland with the Coast Guard. And so, um, you know, mom and dad got to be mom and dad, right? That is our number one ministry. So we had to get over there and make sure he was set, help, help him set up. And, you know, pretty, pretty crazy just, you know, to when you leave your 19-year-old son in another state that knows nobody in an apartment. It's like, whoo, all right, this is real now. <laughs> um, but he's doing well. And um, again, thank you guys for giving us the opportunity to be able to get away and for Lana for stepping in to making, making that possible. Uh, today, after the message, we are going to be partaking in communion together. So there are little communion, uh, you know, the packages on your seats. I hope you didn't sit on it. Um, or, you know, you'll have to you know, send us a dry cleaning bill, I guess. <laughs> if you're watching at home today, you're going to be joining us online. You might want to pause the video and go grab some bread or some crackers and some juice or some wine so you can participate with us at the end of this. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to make our hearts ready for what he wants to say to us today. Lord, I thank you. I thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, that song is, it was just such a perfect song to prep our hearts for this message. It reminds us um, that you are above all things and that you are always in control. So no matter what takes place in this life down here, you're sovereign and you are good and you are seated on the throne. So Lord, I pray that the way we live our lives would be a reflection that we do in fact have a king and his name is Jesus. So speak to us through this word today, um, work in our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. How many of you guys read the book Lord of the Flies when you were in high school or maybe out of high school? Anybody? Yeah, some of us, some of us. How many of you guys read the Cliff Notes Lord of the Flies or watched the video instead? <laughs> Bailey and I. <laughs> Well, just to catch up a little bit, I'll, I'll, I'll recap it. The story is a group of boys who are left to fend for themselves when their plane crashes on a deserted island. The story powerfully demonstrates the breakdown of society and man's bent towards evil, even in the life of these boys when it's played out in power struggles and violence. So what happens in the end of the story is a savage group of boys, as, the, as this group of you know, sophisticated British boys are on this island, things begin to break down more and more and more and more as the story progresses. And then it comes to this point where the group is, is really just a bunch of savages and they are, they're out hunting this lone survivor named Ralph who refuses to take part in their savagery. He refuses to take part under Jack, the leader's violent rule. And because of that, it makes Ralph dangerous and Jack wants him dead. So he sends all the boys out on the island to hunt down Ralph and to kill him. So the boys end up setting this humongous fire on the island to flush Ralph out of hiding. And then it creates this pursuit through the jungle. So I have a little video here. I want us to see it because I think, you know, sometimes a, a picture is worth a thousand words. Let's just watch a minute from the last bit of the 
moving. And if I'm spoiling it for you, this is an old movie. There are spoiler rules. It's okay to spoil movies that are like 20 years old and books that are like 30 years old, right? All right, so turn your eyes to the screen and you can see this last bit of the end of Lord of the Flies. The rest that goes on where it pans out and other service members are on the beach there with their boats and helicopters flying in and that's how the movie ends. But the presence of the officers, if you notice that, it, it stopped these boys in all their savagery, right, in their tracks. These boys that felt like they had such power and such authority over this Ralph who they were pursuing, they were stopped dead when they were confronted by real authority and real power. And then the boys looked absolutely foolish, didn't they? They looked absolutely weak, clutching these sharpened sticks that they had used throughout the story as weapons of war. So in the same way, this is what the powers of this world, they're going to be seen as in the presence of true power and true authority when Jesus Christ returns. They're going to look like little boys holding sticks that have been sharpened. Little boys who are acting like savages. Previously, in the past two weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the letters to the seven churches, and we saw how all seven of the churches were called to persevere under the pressure to conform in the world around them. That, that's pretty much the message of all of the seven churches, and there's varying degrees of how much they were you know, sold out for Christ and bearing under the pressure of persecution or completely sold out to the world and conforming to the standards of the world. And Jesus told them, though, that to, to resist this pressure that you're experiencing to conform, and you're actually going to experience greater opposition, greater persecution if you do. In your resistance to conformity, it's going to make things worse down here, not better. Aren't we always looking for solutions to make life better down here, not worse? And Jesus says, that's not the answer. The answer is just the opposite. But if you do, if you resist the pressure to conform to the ways of this world, you will then receive the fullness of heaven as your eternal reward. All of heaven for all of eternity is yours to have. And that was the promise at each of the end of the letters to each of the churches. And then we see that promise fulfilled at the end of Revelation and that we will see in a few weeks. However, those who join the world, who decide that it's just not worth it, Jesus continually warns them that they would then be treated like the world when Jesus comes back in power. And so you get this picture 
like these boys on the island. Which, which team are you going to be? Are you going to be Team Jack in its power, in its savageness? Or are you going to be Team Ralph that is meek and seemingly weak, like a lamb set to the slaughter? Which team would you choose in a situation, in a scenario like that. And that's ultimately what Jesus was saying. And he was saying, and yet the one who is weak will be the one who is rescued in the end. So today we're going to see an apocalypsis. Remember what that word means. It's, it's a lifting of the curtain to see what is true in this life when what we see so oftentimes we think is true is actually false. So we'll see a snapshot of a heavenly throne room and we'll see what real authority and what real power look like when it is unveiled before us. Now, this is a timely message. I love it when Jesus does this, don't you? When I was like, when I knew what was coming, I was like, oh man, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. Thank you, Jesus. It's like, it's as if you know what you're doing. <laughs> of course he knows what he's doing. See, this is a timely message for us as we're entering into what week? Election week. Man, doesn't it seem like we've been waiting for this for like four years now? <laughs> it just, this is like the week that won't come, huh? Now finally it's here, and this is perhaps one of the most bitter election cycles in our lifetime. And every, every election cycle, we top it, don't we? I think I said this last time, the most bitter election cycle of our lifetime, only to be topped by 2020. You know, what the heck is 2024 going to bring us? <laughs> See, as a country, we are about to either elect our current president for four more years or about to elect a new president into that position of power. And I'll be honest, I've heard from both sides right now, the past, I guess, you know, year or whatever. I've heard from both parties, but especially ramping up towards this, saying that this election will determine the future of our country. I've heard both parties say that this election is about the soul of our nation. I've heard both parties say that if the other guy gets elected, then our freedoms are going to vanish and life here will never be the same. And it seems as though both parties are already priming their people to cast doubt on the legitimacy of their opponent's victory if their opponent wins, which has created a lot of unease with us, hasn't it? It almost feels certain like unrest and violence is going to be in our streets no matter what the outcome is. It feels like there's going to be a group of people that are crying foul no matter what. See, fear is a powerful force to motivate people in times of uncertainty. And some of us might be worried sick about what's going to happen. Some of us may have, been, have a lot of anxiety leading up into this and we can't wait to get it over because we just want to peel the Band-Aid off, so to speak. So could it be that while we have the right and an obligation to participate in the political process, we should do so with firm understanding this week that while our country is electing a president, that is all that we are doing? That's it. Now, is it, is it unimportant? Absolutely not. It's important for our time and place. But that's all we are doing. See, we absolutely this week have got to remember that while our country is electing a president as Christians, we already have a king, period. We already have a king. So I'm not, again, I'm not saying this is not unimportant, but when the curtain is lifted and we see King Jesus, whoever is put in power this week is going to look like a boy with a stick compared to him. 
that's it. See, we, this is why we absolutely need this revelation today. We absolutely need this curtain lifted for us today. We need to be set free from the power of fear that has created such division in our country and violence that our country has already seen. We need this revelation in order to respond righteously for whatever comes next. Otherwise, it would be way too easy to be swept away by what everybody's telling us how to respond and act if we forget that we have a king. See, no matter if your guy wins or not, Jesus is still absolutely in control. Let me say that again. Jesus is still absolutely in control, no matter what the outcome of the election is. And this, dare I say, is the point of the book of Revelation. See, it lifts us above the temporal so we can see the eternal. And when we do, all power and authority seems in this life seems so infinitely small and temporary next to Jesus, who cannot be unseated. Next to Jesus, who is, is permanent, who is eternal, and who is with us. So let's look at Revelation. We're going to look at two chapters today. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, if you remember, this is, this is familiar. We, I wish we didn't have a week in between this, this message and the last message. Remember, the end of three, chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus says this, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Now you contrast the end of this letter to the churches where Jesus is saying, Guys, I'm here, hello, let me in. Contrast this with what we're seeing right now, and we see that the problem with shut doors does not lie between God and us. The problem is us. See, we are the ones who have shut the door and locked it, while the door in heaven remains open for us to come through. The invitation here to John is, come on up, come on up here and see. And the door was already opened into heaven. What is this saying to us? It says that it is not God who is distant from us. We are the ones who keep him far from us. John is invited inside, and what does he see? He goes inside and he sees heaven's throne room. It says this in verse 2. And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were the 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peelings of thunder. In the front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. All right, now if you caught this one spot, and which got my attention, I was like, what in the world is the seven spirits of God? <laughs> 
You know, I'm like, when I stand, like, what? That's just strange. Is God seven spirits? So remember, the book of Revelation is drawing more on Old Testament imagery than any other book in the New Testament, probably realistically combined. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, and I'll read this. It says, verse 11, th- 1 through 3, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So this is pulling us back to this. With the seven spirits of God, what it is is capturing the fullness. Seven always means completeness. So what this is saying is is that, that, that this is the completeness, the fullness of God, of the person of God will dwell in the Lord's anointed that Isaiah is prophesying about. For what purpose? Why would the fullness of the seven spirits of God, the fullness of God dwell on this Messiah? For what reason? It must be a reason great. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So this allusion back to Isaiah reminds who? The weak, the oppressed, the poor, the persecuted, a.k.a. the losers of this world, that they have a hero. And who has Jesus just written a letter to via John? The losers of this world. And he's saying, guys, you are not heroless. See, this comes as great news for the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. They were being trampled on for right now. For a season, they were, being, they were put, being put under the boot of their oppressors. But Jesus is saying here that they will be victorious because of the anointed one. He is in control. And what does the rest of Isaiah remind us? In the fullness of God, he will bring judgment and justice with his coming. This is good news. If you find yourself in this camp, as the weak, the oppressed, the persecuted, those who stand faithful against opposition when it's not cool to be faithful. This is great news for us. See, John's vision continues. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and back. It's like a Halloween costume, isn't it? (laughs) The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man. The fourth was was like a flying eagle. (coughs) Excuse me. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. And even under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So what happens here? John sees these strange creatures that are obviously not of this world, with wings that were covered with, and with wings where they probably shouldn't have had wings, according to us, and eyes all over their bodies. And what are they doing? They are worshiping God day and night. They never stop. This is what they were created for. This is what these creatures do. This this means that there is continuous worship around the throne of God since the moment these creatures were created, who knows how long ago, all through eternity. It never, ever stops. And so why is this important for us? Something to keep in mind. 
Because back on earth, when John is receiving this vision, there's, this is a time of crisis. This is a time of opposition that is taking place for these small, weak, and beat-up churches. And this vision reminded both Smyrna and Philadelphia that there is no crisis, there is no declaration, there is no election that has the power to stop the worship of our God. Nothing in this world, as bad as, as might come in this world, it can't stop God's praises. So day and night, these weird, ugly angels are praising him. By the way, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like a mom. They'd never think they're ugly's baby, right? Or they're, they're, that was, their baby is ugly. <laughs> their baby ugly. <laughs> That's like God, these ugly little things. He's like, you're so beautiful. <laughs> See, his praises never cease. So even if, even if at this point in time when it was originally foretold to these churches or, or any other time when it seems like the praises of God are being snuffed out on earth, they're not. See, even if it seems like evil is triumphing, even if it seems like you yourself are so weak you barely have the strength to go on, his praises will always continue and it will always outlast the temporary empires of this world because every single empire in this world is temporary. The only kingdom that is not temporary is the eternal kingdom of God. Period. Period. And God's praises will continue. See, this isn't the first time now we catch a glimpse at these, at these ugly angels. A little over 800 years earlier in the prophet Isaiah, he's caught up in a vision of a heavenly throne room. I'll read Isaiah 6. This is 6, 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then a few hundred years after that, the prophet Ezekiel and Daniel, who were contemporaries of each other, they had similar visions of the heaven's throne room where they see similar things. See, and what did all of these prophets have in common besides seeing these strange creatures worshiping God? All of these visions were received in a time of national crisis. All of these times, whenever a prophet had a, had a vision of a heavenly throne room, it was when there was crises on earth in the earthly kingdoms. So be specific, these were crises of sovereignty. The question of who really is in control? Who's in control right now? See, for Isaiah, the vision came when Uzziah, a good king, died, and there was uncertainty about who will lead Israel next. There was no king in this short amount of time. And he sees God who is seated on the throne, eternal, and can never be unseated. For Ezekiel, the vision came after the wicked, wicked king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, ransacked Jerusalem and carried the Jewish people off into exile. And there was uncertainty about how can God be in control when his people have been so thoroughly and utterly defeated? And he sees God seated on the throne. 
And for Daniel, the vision came after living under the rule of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Belshazzar, king of Babylon. He has this vision of the heavenly throne room. He goes on to see King Darius, king of the Medes, and Cyrus, the Persian king. Poor Daniel had to serve under five different crazy kings. In the middle of that, he sees a revelation of God. The eternal one, seated on his throne. He who can never be unseated. See, and now what happens? And now John has a vision of the heavenly throne room, smack dab in the middle of another crisis in time when there is a crazy king persecuting God's people and declaring himself to be God, not just king. So it's timely, isn't it? It's exactly what the people of God needed to remember to be able to find strength to endure as a people who are not of this world in a kingdom that is very foreign to them. See, what this says is that empires, they are going to come and empires are going to go and those creepy little angels are still going to be right there doing the job that they were created for, worshiping the Almighty. So any king, any dictator, any authority, any power, or any president of this earth is going to seem so small when the curtain is lifted and we have had a revelation of heaven's throne. And we see who is sitting on it forever and ever and ever. Now, what does this do? It invites us to follow suit. It invites us to do the only reasonable thing in the presence of a king, to lift our eyes off of these rulers in our time and place, no matter what goes on, and to worship our king, to worship he who is really in control of us, he who we really have a perfect and total and 100% allegiance to, our king in heaven. Revelation 4, 9 through 11 says this, it goes on. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will. They were created and have their being. The kings, presidents, emperors, regular Joes and Janes like me and you, we are all invited to do the same exact thing, to fall down before him and to lay our crowns at his feet. See, to lay your crown at somebody's feet, it means to submit to their rule and reign in your life. It's saying, I am not king. You are the boss of me. I am not the captain of my own ship in spite of all these things that are being told of me. But I will gladly lay my crown at your feet. And that means that we have to trust his plan. That means we have to trust what he's doing as king of our lives. It also means we have to follow his commands and not see them as just opinions for us of how to live a good, happy, moral life. That these actually are commands given to us by our king means we have to declare him worthy of glory and honor and power with the kings and the creatures of heaven. Because what does it say there? He is creator and we are the created. It reminds us of our place in this world, doesn't it? So no matter what takes place in our time and place, when you've laid your crown down, 
You can find peace on this earth no matter what kind of hell we have to walk through, when and if. Because we have a king. You say, I didn't, I didn't you know, this isn't my mess that I created. I have a king. He's, he's mine, and I, I just have to be faithful to serve him in whatever the circumstances I find myself in. There are things out of my control. I can't control these things around me that are going on around me. But I control how I worship my king. I control how I live my life before my king so the world can see my king through me. And that's the subject of the next chapter. The next chapter continues this vision of the throne room and it creates a paradigm of how we as Christians are to be victorious down here on earth going through our own crises and tribulations. So verse one through four, it says this. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. See, in Isaiah's vision, God asks who will go and declare God's message to the people. Isaiah, who is unworthy because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, what happens next? He declares, I'm unworthy, I'm a man of unclean lips, and God takes a coal, sends an angel with a coal to touch his lips to make him clean for this message and fit for the message. But here there's no one. Here there's nobody that can do this job. No one is worthy to do this great thing, and coal will not do So John, he weeps at this realization, the feebleness of humanity's inability to open a scroll, to open a letter. And this creates such a contrast between the almighty power of creator God and us, doesn't it? So from God's perspective, we are so weak that there is nobody on earth, anybody who is dead, there's nobody in heaven who can open up a letter, who can break a wax seal. That's how feeble we are compared to him. And right when John is losing and falling into despair because there is nobody, what happens? But wait, all is not lost because verse five says this. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has triumphed and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Did you catch it? The root of David. Now, who's that? Let's go back to Isaiah 11. We have already been told who it is. It's the Messiah, the anointed one. He who has been anointed with the fullness of God, the seven spirits of God dwell within him. The character, the attributes, everything of God in him, the anointed one. We have a hero who is worthy. And who does the elder say it is? The Lion of Judah. Now, when you are weak and you need a hero, isn't this good news? Like, you're like, yes, the Lion of Judah. He's fierce, strong, power. He's got sharp claws and sharp teeth and a big flowing mane. That's what I want when I need a rescuer. That's what I want when I need a hero. And this is what's been declared And John has to be feeling pretty good about what's going on right now because at first he was in such despair that there was no hero. There was nobody worthy. But wait, the Lion of Judah. And then 5, 6, John looks. And then I saw a lamb. 
He's like, what? Who wants a lamb? Who wants a lamb when you need a lion? You know, lion, lambs were the ultimate picture in ancient times of weakness. Lambs are the prey of predators. Lambs are bred, literally bred like our cows and pigs to be slaughtered and killed and eaten. That's the purpose of a lamb. But not just any lamb. As it goes on to say this, a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So not just a lamb, not like a lamb with like a Rambo bandana and he's all buff with a machine gun and bullets around, you know, like, (laughs) cigar hanging in his mouth. No, a slain, bloody lamb. A lamb that looks like it's already been defeated. A lamb looks like it got drugged behind somebody's truck. That lamb is our hope. But where are we? We're not here. We're there. John is seeing from heaven's perspective. So he's saying, do not be fooled. But what, what looked like defeat from our perspective, from our perspective, this looks like defeat. From our perspective, this looks like weakness. From our perspective, this looks like foolishness. This looks like nonsense. Who would trust a lamb that was already beaten? But from heaven's perspective, this lamb is declared to be a lion. And this lamb has already been made victorious through his death, which is exactly why this lamb is the only one in all of heaven and earth or under the earth, the only one who is worthy to open up the scroll, not because of its defeat, it's not in spite of its defeat, but because of its defeat. So the lamb takes the scroll from God, and this is what happens in verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign where? On earth. Here. This is is where we'll reign. See, these creepy angels, the 24 elders, and in the following verses, because we don't have enough time today, we won't hit these particular parts, we'll skip them, but we read that all of heaven and this multitude, the sea of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation is singing praises to the Lamb. So remember, the Lamb is the embodied fullness of God. So their praises to the Lamb are actually praises that are being directed to God. He's worthy because of his sacrifice and by his sacrifice, We've been purchased as a people for God. So our sins have been paid for. We've gone from orphans to daughters and sons of the Most High. But not just sons and daughters. Did you hear what he says? He says we've been made to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. This means there's a job for us to do. And where does he say we reign? Here. That means there's a job for us to do right here. There's a job for us probably in eternity too, but right here is that there's, there is work for us to do. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to, to, to do this job? Well, for those who've laid down their crowns and pledged allegiance to the king, their lives should be a reflection of the lamb. 
See, you may vote a certain way, but do not forget that primarily you are not a donkey or an elephant, but primarily we are a lamb. That is who we are first and foremost before anything else in this life. This is our primary allegiance. This is who we declare. And therefore, our actions should be a reflection of this. Our lives should look like it. People should see and go, oh, they belong to the Lamb. They're part of the Lamb's party. That's what they do. It's pretty obvious. In the same way these past weeks, and I, maybe I'm stereotyping a little bit, but, but can't you almost tell how people vote by their, by the, if they wear a mask in certain places or not? You know, I mean, you go, eh, that probably, person probably votes that way. Eh, they probably vote that way. You know, in the same way, we should, we should look at it and say, eh, that's a lamb. That's a lamb right there. So our lives should look like it. So just like Ralph We are not to get caught up into the violence of this world or the power struggles of this world in order to secure temporary victories. But Revelation 5, it shows us that true, lasting power from heaven's perspective, how does it come? Did Jesus say, you know, grab your guns and fight in the streets? It's land time. How did he get victory? Through service. Through love, through sacrifice. See, we'll jump ahead to Revelation 12, 11. This is talking about the Christian, the church's defeat of Satan. How do we defeat Satan in this world? How do we defeat the forces that come against the church? How do we defeat the oppression? How do we defeat the powers of this world? What do we do? They triumphed over him, speaking of Satan, by what? The blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. See, when we live like the lamb, we are going to become victorious like the lamb. This right here, this is, this is key to our victory. So this is what our country desperately needs right now. It doesn't matter in some sense what happens this next Tuesday, because we can be victorious. We can be victorious by living this out as representatives and reflection of he who is seated on the throne. So what do we do? We've got to to fight the spirit of this world with a contrasting spirit. At least we get caught up into the ways of this world, look just like this world, and lose our identification where people can't see a difference between us and donkeys and elephants, where we don't look lammy anymore. So take time to love your enemy this week. And there will be lots of opportunity for it, especially if you're fishing around Facebook. Take time to choose to bless those who curse you this week. Don't allow yourself to participate in toxic conversations that perpetuate hate and division this week. Take time to show the world that the church will not be divided as a result of an election this week. But we will stay united in spite of our differences because of our unity in the Lamb first and foremost. So even if the whole world goes to hell this week, Don't just be concerned if you have enough food and bullets to hunker down long enough for yourself. Be concerned about your neighbor's well-being this week, even if your neighbor voted for the other guy. Be concerned for those 
who have absolutely zero ability to stockpile food because right now they live hand in mouth as it is already. Be concerned for those people this week. Be concerned that you're showing the world what true power looks like and it looks like a lamb and that lamb is Jesus. Do everything in your power and strength and the spirit of the living God, the sevenfold spirit that has also been breathed into you by the power of the Holy Spirit to make him visible in your life this week. And no matter what happens with the election, we will be victorious. We have a reason to sing. We have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason looking from heaven's perspective that can never steal the joy that we have as we reign and rule with Christ, even right here, right now. And if you begin to find yourself, I'll close with this, the worship team wants to come up. If you find yourself overwhelmed, anxious, and afraid with life down here, what do you do? You've got to just continue to reorient yourself that you have a king. You tell yourself again and again and again, I have a king, and my king is in control. And then you stop upon that realization that you have a king and that he is in control and stop to do what heaven has already been doing through all of eternity and to join the heavenly choir and worship him this week. When you feel like inside of yourself all of those emotions that are raw and real and and legitimate at times, but stop it by focusing on Jesus. So that's what I want to do right now as we close, is we're just going to worship together. We're going to participate in communion together. See, worship helps us gain heaven's perspective. In worship, we remember that we have a king and we have a champion that can never be dethroned in this life. In worship, we remember our role in life down here is to make the Lamb of God known and to live victoriously because of it. So if you find yourself getting unwound by what's taking place around us, Do what we're doing now and do what heaven has been doing in worship. Let's rise to our feet. And after this next song, we'll partake in communion together. But just take a moment and still your heart before the Lord. If you have felt unrest in your heart and soul, if you felt anxiety about what's taking place in the world around us, if you have fear because of the uncertainties about what could take place, because fear seems to be a weapon that's been used a lot this past year, just breathe in deep every breath you say, Holy Spirit, I breathe you in. I invite you to push out this anxiety, this fear, this worry. And help me to remember that we are victorious in Jesus Christ already. And to get yourself into a place where you would sing with heaven, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. find peace before him right now. And let's sing this next song together before we take the elements together 
And in this song, prepare your heart for that moment as we worship Jesus, our Savior, our Victor, our Lamb. <laughs>